This is week three of our Game of Thrones series. Again, this has nothing to do with the, the Netflix show. This is, uh, this is just simply a name connection. But talking about, the, um, talking about this idea of Games of Thrones and watching um, as I read through First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, and I'm watching all of the interactions and those things that play in the lives of the kings of Israel and Judah. And when I look at kind of the things that were things that set them up for success and also the things that set them up for failure, and there was some really cool stuff. I promise I could preach for a year on the kings, but I won't. Um, but man, um, there's some really good stuff. So I want to dig in here to um, the life of King Saul. And um, I really wrestle with this one because honestly, when people talk about King Saul and there's kind of a narrative that's built around the life of King Saul and people that have studied the Bible and people that know the Bible, they talk about King Saul's pride and his anger as kind of the things that were his downfall as a leader. But as I was rereading the story of Saul this year, one of the things that stood out to me was I don't really see, I mean, Pride and anger were definitely parts of his downfall, but really the thing that I see as the linchpin um, of, of Saul's demise was um, a little different than what I read in commentaries and stuff. And so today, as we go, <clears throat> we're going to dig through and we're going to uncover what I believe um, is something that King Saul wrestled with. And I think that many of us wrestle with the same thing. And I think that what was a downfall to him could potentially be a downfall for us. So um, let me give a little caution, though, as we, as we start looking at the, the life of Saul. One of the things that I think people do, I, when I read through the kings of Israel, man, I love David, and I want to be a David. Everything in me wants to be a David. I want to be a man after God's own heart. I want to be a worshiper. I want to be the kind of person who is just engaged in the presence of God constantly, and David had his faults and David had his downfalls, but he was called a man after God's heart. And that's what I want to be known as. And so I'm always looking to try to find those parts of me that are like David. I want that. One of the things that we can do, though, with the life of Saul is we tend not to look at how the life of Saul applies to us. Saul represents the mean people that are trying to attack us, right? But, but what we never see in Saul is the parts of me that are like Saul. And I got to tell you guys, there are some things in me that are like Saul. And when I look at his life and I look at my life and I kind of measure them up, I'm like, man, God, this is something that I really don't like about Saul, but it's something that rises up in me sometimes and I don't like it. Would you help me get rid of this? And I want you today, as you're listening to this message, as you're engaging with God's word, I want you to try to identify yourself with King Saul. Don't sit next to your husband and poke him in the shoulder and say, listen, you hear that? I want you to look at yourself, right? Look at yourself and see how you relate. So 1 Samuel, 9, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 9 is where we're going to get started. This is the introduction to, um, to the person Saul. And let's read, let's read about it. Uh, 9 verse 1. It says, There was a, healthy, uh, a wealthy, influential man named Kish from the tribe of Benjamin. He was the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of hard name, son of another hard name of the tribe of Benjamin. 
I just gave up on pronouncing those, sorry. His son was Saul, the most handsome man in Israel. Now, some of you guys are saying, see, there's already something I identify with right there. That is so good. There's one thing that I can relate to Saul on, right? Um, He was head and shoulders taller than anyone else in the land. What an introduction. Right. When you listen to a description like this, if People magazine was doing the sexiest man alive during that season, it would have been King Saul on the front. Right. With his teeth shiny and a little sparkle. And, you know, he would have been looking good. King Saul was the guy. And so you would not think of Saul as somebody like like if they had an ancient Avengers movie, he would have been Thor. Right. Like he is that guy. And the teenage girls are going, yup. So now we hit the point in the story where Samuel is telling Saul that he's going to become king. And let me just tell you, by the way, how I'm going to kind of approach this. I cannot go verse by verse through the story of Saul. It's too long. So I'm just going to pick some highlights because I'm trying to build a case for what we see as a struggle in Saul's life and what really became his downfall. So we're going to jump now to verse 21. So let's read this together. It says, uh, Samuel is approaching Saul about becoming the king of Israel. And now we're going to read Saul's response. He says, but I'm only from the tribe of Benjamin, the smallest tribe in Israel. And my family is the least important of all the families of that tribe. Why are you talking like this to me? You hear this? Now, as I was reading some of the, con- uh, the commentaries that I-, I was using this week, what I kept hearing was, listen to how Saul started with humility. And as I was reading this, I thought, he's not starting with humility. He's starting with insecurity. There's a difference between humility and insecurity, okay? So, so insecurity is when you're looking at yourself, thinking how you don't measure up. Okay, humility is it's not thinking of your it's not it's not thinking less of yourself. Humility is just thinking of yourself less. Okay, but you can read and saw here. He's still thinking about himself, isn't he? It's all directed at him. It's I'm the focus. Look, I don't measure up. I and what what Samuel has done is he's come on the scene and he said, listen, Saul, you are God's man for this job. He's called you, he's assigned you, he's put you in place. Now you just have to step into it. And Saul says, yeah, I know that's what you say and I know that's what God says, but look at my situation. God's not big enough to overcome who I am. Do you see the problem here? Now, we're gonna see as as we go through the life of Saul how this insecurity really starts to grow. It doesn't diminish as he steps into his position of power, Matter of fact, his insecurity gets worse and worse and worse. And we see kind of the, the genesis of it here, but then as we see it develop and snowball, man, it gets painful. So we're going to look next at this thing. Um, so, so Saul's sense of security is not centered on God's ability to enable him, but on the size and the value of the tribe and the family he comes from. And so I'm not sure... Um, if this is the case or not, but it would seem as though he's listening to other people's opinions as opposed to listening to God's opinion, right? How many of you have ever found yourself in a situation where you listen more to the opinions of people than you do to the opinion of God? Come on. 
Who wants to be honest this morning? We're real people, real hope, real life. How many of you have spent more time listening to the opinions of others than you have the opinion of God? Man, I find myself caught in that struggle. Again, I identify with so much of what Saul is experiencing here because I wrestle with my own insecurities. I wrestle with my own things. And you guys are going to find out in the course of this message just how sick your pastor is, okay? This is an issue. And it's an issue for all of us. And I think it's okay. Let's just be truthful about this thing. Flip over to 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse Uh, 21 through 22, it says, then he brought each family of the tribe of Benjamin before the Lord and the family of the Matrites was chosen. And finally, Saul, son of Kish, was chosen from among them. But when they looked for him, he had disappeared, okay? So the way that they would do it in, um, in the Old Testament, if they were trying to assert God's will in a certain situation, even uh, I was reading this morning the book of Joshua when, um, when the nation of Ai had defeated um, the Israelites after they had started taking possession of the land that God had given them. Um, somebody had stolen something that God said, don't take anything, and they had taken something. And so in order to get to the bottom of it, they bring out every tribe, and after every tribe, they would choose another tribe, and then they would grab, oh, that was the tribe, and then they would grab clans within the tribes, and then they would say, okay, and then within that was family groups, and then they would pull out the family groups, and then they would do an individual. And so as it's kind of getting whittled down here, you're like, oh, no, they're getting ready to call my number. How many of you have ever been sitting at a raffle or something like that where they got door prizes, and you you get like the first four numbers of your ticket called, and you're like, this is going to be my day. This is going to be my day, and then it's not your day, Right? And if you're like me, it's never your day. It's okay, right? But, but Saul is like, it keeps getting whittled down and they're pulling off more numbers, more numbers, more numbers. And finally, his number is called. And listen to verse 22 where they find him. So they ask the Lord, where, where is he? And the Lord has to answer, he is hiding among the baggage. Really? Like when you think about this, all right, here you got big old tall Saul head and shoulders above everybody else, the most handsome guy, he's the cover of GQ, and he's hiding in a bunch of luggage among the equipment. He's like down in a, I'm hoping they don't find me. And they have to ask God, because apparently he's good at hide and seek. And so they're like, look, where is Saul? And God's like, he's over in the baggage claim. (laughs) Go over to the bag claim and you'll find him. And I can imagine, like, Samuel walking over there. (laughs) For real, Saul? For real. Like, we're trying to anoint you king, and you're hiding under the floral luggage. Seriously. Come on. You know, and and so, so, again, what is this? This is his insecurity breeding fear, and the fear says, I'm not the one for the job. How many of you have missed out on your calling because of your insecurities? You don't have to show hands all the time, but I just want want you to kind of embrace this for a second, okay? Process this. Because it's so funny to look at Saul and we're like, how ridiculous is that? I mean, he's hiding in the luggage. But I think that our churches are full of people that are hiding among the people. Saying, I'm not quite ready to step into my calling because I'm not sure that I got what it takes. But let me assure you that the one that called you is also the one that equips you. And what I've learned from my experience is God never calls the equipped, but he equips the called. 
So you got to step into your calling and let God do what he does. God never asked you to be awesome. God's got enough awesomeness all by himself. He does not need your awesomeness. And some of you are awesome, awesome. And, and your awesomeness is massive. And I feel more awesome just by hanging out with you. But God doesn't need your awesomeness because he's got his all by himself. Matter of fact, when I was reading Revelation 21 this week, it talks about how that not only does God shine his glory when he's in heaven, but when we're in heaven with him, we're actually also going to glow with his glory. The saints will glow. Think about Moses when he encountered God on the mountain and he comes down from the mountain and he's got to pull on, put the veil over his face, right? Because the glory of God's so strong and he's glowing. So cool. So God doesn't need our awesomeness. He's got it. He just needs your obedience. Touch your neighbor and say, God just needs your obedience. Some of you are like, I'm not touching anybody. And I don't care if it's rebellious. I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to stare at you. And No, I'm just messing with you. It's okay. If you don't feel like poking your neighbor, it's okay. Don't poke. You could touch. You could... Like, do a shoulder thing if you want to do a little, you know, encouragement, a little elbow, how, however you feel comfortable. If you feel like you need a breath mint or something, we'll help you next week. Just come with a breath mint and just come strong. Be ready. Be ready. Be ready. So, so now, so now we, we I'm just going to kind of move into fast forward here as we go through the story of Saul, okay? What starts out as something that seems innocuous, as Saul moves on, and steps into the role of king. See, he stepped into the role of king, but he didn't step into the calling of the king. He had a title, but he didn't have the calling as his. You see, he didn't embrace it. He just embraced the role. And one of the things that I hear um, often from people is, um, well, if I had a title, then I would have more authority. But do you know, you can step into a calling before you ever get a title. If, if a title is required for you to do what you're called to do, you haven't stepped into your calling yet, right? There are plenty of situations that I go into where I'm not the appointed leader, but I'm an anointed leader. And so I still have to live out my calling because my calling is full-time, not just full-time 40 hours a week. It's full-time every hour of every day of my life. God has called me to be a pastor, and so I have to walk in that anointing all the time. So whether I'm the appointed leader, I have to be the anointed leader whether I, I feel like it or not. And there are some days when I don't feel like it. I know that you guys never have those days, but I have those days when I'm just not feeling it. Anybody relate? Come on, church. Y'all better amen me on stuff like that. So, so what he does is he begins to let the fear of people begin to influence him. And one of the things that disqualifies him at the beginning of his rulership is when um, he's, he's getting ready to attack this country so he can take more land. And, and as he is getting ready to attack, he's like, man, I got to make an offering to God. And I'm waiting on Samuel and the man of God's not showing up. So I got to do something because the people are getting loud and we can't attack unless we've got a, an offering, a sacrifice that's been made. And so, so instead of waiting for Samuel and doing things God's way, he says, okay, I'll do the sacrifice myself because we just need a sacrifice to be made. And as soon as he does it, guess who shows up? Samuel. 
And I don't know, parents are really good at the disappointed look. Um, but I have this feeling that prophets of God are also really good at the disappointed look. You ever have, I remember when I was growing up, my mom would walk in the room and she never had to say anything. She'd just go. <laughs> and this guilt would just <sighs> hit me like an avalanche. How many of you have ever experienced that? Put your hand down, Grace. Anytime. You don't ever do that. It's, it's that, that moment when, when dad walks in the room or mom walks in the room and you're like, oh, man. And here comes Samuel walking up. And Samuel's like, what did you do? And so I was like, well, the people made me. Hmm. How about that? How about that? See, what starts to happen when we are insecure is we allow others around us to start making decisions for us. And that's when the problems start, right? That's when disobedience sets in, right? We begin this process of saying, well, I'm going to let you make deciding uh, life decisions for me because I'm so insecure that I can't stand up for myself. And we think a lot of times adults, man, we think this is a teenage problem. It's not a teenage problem. It's a human problem. And you never outgrow it. There's always something where the enemy is just pulling at you, pulling at you, pulling at you, trying to leverage your insecurities to allow others to make decisions for you. And you end up making dumb decisions. Don't you hate that? And then after you make a dumb decision, you're like, why did I do that? And this is that moment as Samuel has come on the scene and Saul's like, why did I do that? And he's like, I didn't really do anything. And, Paul, and Samuel's like, well, how come then I hear the goats bleeding in my ears? Right? Your mom would hear stuff happen in your room that you didn't ever think that she heard, but she's got bionic hearing and she would just show up and you'd be like, oh, man, it's over. Right? And so this is kind of that deal. And then in that moment, God rejects Saul as king. He says, look, I'm looking for a man after my own heart, and I can't have you be because you're after the people's heart. And if you're after the people's heart, you can't be after my heart because you can't seek the approval of men and get the approval of God. If you need man's approval for your security, you're always going to face obstacles. You can't allow that to be what determines things for you. And then... Bring David on the scene. Behind the scenes, David gets anointed as the king of Israel. Our first introduction to David, he's anointed as the king of Israel. So even though Saul is now the appointed king, David is the anointed king. And so he's walking in this new authority, and God's spirit is upon him. And he has, he has the heart of God because God has David's heart. And so there's this interaction that begins happening between David and God. And Saul begins to sense it. And we see it um, when David goes to take on Goliath, right? David's getting ready and he shows up for like a month. Goliath has been taunting the people of Israel repeatedly every day coming down. Who's going to send out a man? Just send me a man, anybody. I don't care who it is. I will break him down and you'll be a defeated, enslaved people. Come on, bring me a man. And everybody's standing there in fear. They got these armies filled with warriors and they're all afraid. Saul is the giant of Israel, head and shoulders above everyone else. And he's afraid to go down and face Goliath. And David shows up. Hey, yo, I hear there's a problem with this Philistine over here. I know a God and we could take care of him. You know, he's like, he's ready to go. And here's this kid that shows up. And what does Saul comment to him? He says, surely you cannot defeat this giant. 
So I have an opinion of you, David, and it's based out of my insecurity with myself. And I don't think that I could take him and I'm much bigger and badder than you are. And so because I'm bigger and badder than you are, because now I'm starting to compare myself to other people based out of my insecurity. So now here comes the comparison trap. I'm going to start comparing. And I see you as a little short, scrawny guy who's just showing up with a leather sling and a few stones. And I don't think you've got what it takes. So I'm going to project my insecurity on you and see if I can keep my insecurity now from keeping you from accomplishing. Because if you succeed, it becomes an indictment against me as a leader. So you listen to this thing happen. And David says, no, I think I got it. David goes down this amazing moment. And he just confronts the giant Goliath. And I love his dialogue or his monologue, really, with Goliath. Goliath just throws out his monologue, and then David comes back, and he says, you come against me with your swords, your spears, and a whole big bad army to back you up. I got none of that, man. But what I do have is the name of the Lord God Almighty. Now prepare to die. (laughs) What? What you got, little man? See, what David was saying is, I get it. I'm little. I'm scrawny. I got the curly hair. I got the whole thing. And I get that everybody looks at me and just sees a teenage boy that can't do much of anything. But what you don't see is what's backing me up. What you don't see is what guides my stone. What you don't see is what's happening in the heavenlies around me. So don't go by what you see because what you see is going to lead you astray every time. Just know that God is with me. That's what security looks like. Do you feel that? Do you feel that? That's what security looks like. And so David, in this moment, now begins to experience the favor of the anointing of the Lord on his life and the calling being realized. And then after the death of Goliath, now people start making up songs. He's on the top 40, right? David's got his name in the top 40. When I was growing up, it was Casey Kasem. You guys remember Casey Kasem? This is Casey Kasem in America's Top 40. You remember that? He had that great, it was like the worst Casey Kasem impersonation ever, but I worked it. And so, so you have, you got, he's got people walking around and they're like, they're like, Saul is slain his thousands, but David is slain his tens of thousands. And Saul's got the radio on as he's driving down the road and he hears the song playing and he's like, What? I'm the king. I'm the guy. It's about me, 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 me. And now he starts to get angry. And then we hear the stories about how Saul starts to throw spears at David. Man, that's a whole nother sermon right there. Because at close range, a trained warrior with a spear doesn't often miss. It just depends on who's guiding the spear. 
right? And so God said, with my anointing comes my protection. So I'm not saying it's not going to be hard. I'm not saying that adversity is not going to come. I'm not saying that struggle is not going to be a reality. What I'm saying is that I'm going to be with you. And see, we've, we've done this kind of kindergarten theology of pain in the church. And that is, how can a good God allow pain to exist? If he's so good, why are things so bad? This is kindergarten faith, guys. And the reason is, is because you've blocked God in to a syllogism. If A equals B, then C must exist, right? And so, so you have these categories that we devise and we put God in our boxes, the problem is, is God's not contained by our boxes. And we think we're really, really smart, right? And we always kind of go to war like, like I know and I'm smart and I got it. We're insecure all the rest of the time, but we're confident in our understanding of God. What if God's not bound by your two counterpoints? What if there's three points and four points and five points and seven points and a million points that you don't see? How can we possibly conceive of judging an infinite God by our finite understanding? Is that like the epitome of foolishness? And so as, as we go through this, this life story here, Saul continues to go after David, go after David, go after David. He tries to kill him. He makes the entire point of his rule killing David. Like, that's it. The guy wakes up. How am I going to kill David? Where am I going to find David? I got to go after David. And instead of focusing on ruling in his calling, he's focused on what David's doing. And I think sometimes we are so focused on what everybody else is doing that we miss what God wants us to do. And then we build this competition. How many of you have hung out with anybody? And in spite of all the good things happen in their life, in spite of all the beautiful things that they have, in spite of all the gifts that they've received, when you share something that God has done for you, it always goes back to, well, I wish God would bless me like that. Do you ever have a moment where you just want to slap somebody in the name of Jesus? And say, look at your house. Look at your family. Look at your car. God may not have blessed you in the same way he blessed me, but stop worrying about how he blessed me and start looking at how he blessed you. Otherwise, your worship's going to be tainted for the rest of your life. Stop. It's not a comparison. It's a calling. And I want to I help you understand that competition is corrosive to everything around you. Competition is more corrosive than any substance on planet Earth. It's destructive. It will destroy your bank account. How many of you experienced competition destroy your bank account? Come on. Yep. Well, we have like three honest people in the room. Thank you, Jesus, for honest people. We have all experienced this. I go to Home Depot sometimes, and I go in to get one thing, one thing. That's all I got to get. 
how did I come out with something that I didn't even really go into the store needing, but I saw it in there. I was like, I feel the Lord speaking to me about that right there. Right? How many of you, uh, come on. You walk in and you walk out with like four things you didn't even know that you needed. But all of a sudden you saw it and you needed it because the ad was really good or the placement was really good. Or you're like, I like that a lot, right? And, and what happens is, you know, we're trying to keep up with the Joneses. The problem is, is that the Joneses are broke and you are too. So stop trying to keep up with the Joneses, right? Competition does a disservice to your bank account. Competition is corrosive to your relationships. I was thinking about relationships before social media. Some of you don't even remember life before social media. Some of you weren't alive before social media. But did you know that there used to be a time when we used to take pictures on this thing called a camera and it had this stuff inside called film. And sometimes you would take pictures and you knew that nobody would ever see the pictures that you were going to take except the guy that was developing the film, right? How many of you, I don't know if you had them out here in Baltimore, but in in the Midwest, we had Fox Photo. There were these little photo booths. Do you guys remember photo booths anywhere? And you would drive up. It was like a little drive-through and you would drop your film off and they would have it ready in 24 hours. And we all thought it was like, this is the coolest thing. You could have your pictures ready tomorrow. (laughs) What? That's insane. They used to take three weeks to get it, but now you can get it tomorrow. And then I remember, I remember when they went next level and you could get them for like $20 a roll. You could get your film developed in one hour. Come on now. That's just, that's like back to the future. I mean, that is insane. And, and I remember been taking pictures and, and as you take pictures and you knew no one would ever see them. Matter of fact, they would probably stay in the little envelope in a closet in your house and you wouldn't look at them for like five years, right? You look at them once and be like, oh, that's a good, oh, I look fat in that. Oh, that's a good picture. Oh, that's too dark, right? How come these red eyes are in every picture? Why is everyone demon possessed? And you go through this whole like thing, right? And then you put them in a closet and you knew that nobody else would see them except for the photo guy that's developing them. Now we take pictures knowing that we want to put it on Facebook, right? Or we want to put it on Instagram or we want to put it on Snapchat for like 15 minutes and then it's going to disappear, right? I don't know how long it takes for it to disappear on Snapchats. Okay, whatever that is. I don't even care. So it's one of those Snapchat things and you put some goofy ears on your head and stuff and then you're like, look at me, I'm goofy. And you're like, it's the whole thing is to get people to look at it, right? And like it. And so and I'm, I'm sitting there the other day. I'm in my quiet time. And, and I'm, I'm writing in my journal. And as, it was a very spiritual moment as the sun is coming up and it comes through the window. And, and the way that the sun came through the window and it was hitting the page of the journal while I was writing, I was like, this is heavenly. I love this. And so I start just writing. And I'm like, I want to take a picture of this. And so then I'm sitting, I'm getting ready to take a picture, but I got to take it with my left hand because I write with my right hand. And so I've got the pen in my right hand because I want it to look good. You know, I'm writing in my journal. And so I just, 
I'm hesitant to even share with this because I don't want you to really know how sick I am, but I'm going to tell it anyway. So I'm sitting there and I'm writing in my journal and I'm trying to take the picture with my, with my left hand and I got, it's over on this side, the button's over on this side. So I'm sitting like this, trying to write and I'm like, and then I take the picture, but then I look at the picture and there's like a bag of Doritos still on the coffee table in the picture. And I'm like, shoot, I can't have the Doritos in the picture. So I move the Doritos and I'm like, oh man, that's good. Even before 7 a.m., these are delicious. I love it. No, I didn't. I'm kidding. But anyway, so I'm like moving stuff out of the way and then I get the perfect shot and then I set it up and I'm like, click. And then I'm like, oh, that's awesome. I'm going to post this on Facebook with a scripture now. And then, and then the Lord hits me with, are you really going to post that? <laughs> and I'm sitting there in my quiet time, and I look at my, I've spent like 15 minutes trying to set up this stupid picture to put on Facebook. And then I'm like, I just wasted 15 minutes of time with Jesus to take a picture to put on faith. What am I going to get out of that? I'm going to guess like 100 people are going to like it, and then maybe like six people will wow it. And then I'll be like, whoa, look what I, and then I'll be sitting there flipping through Facebook all day. Oh, wow, look, they wowed it. Oh, wow, look how (laughs) spiritual I am. Man, I am amazingly spiritual. All the while just soaking in the glory that God deserves, and I'm like, what am I doing? Right? Come on, anybody else in the room this messed up? God, help me. Church. So I'm going to share something else, because while we're at confession is good for the soul. How many times do I go on our family fun day off, right? And we get out and we'll be in the moment. Gracie, be quiet. And we'll be in the moment and we're having fun and and we're out there and we're celebrating and we got like, we like to get out and just do fun stuff and just forget about everything and forget about problems and just like do our family time. And it's really fun and we celebrate those times. And, and I like to take pictures because I like to share, you know, on Facebook. And I really do like people to see, hey, this is what our family, because I really wish like I could take everybody here on our family day off with us. If I could rent like a couple of tour buses and take everybody on family day off, I'd be like, let's go. We're going to like storm this creamery in Pennsylvania and be like, hey, look, there's a hundred of us and we love to get ice cream. You know, I just, I wish that I could do it, but I can't. So I take pictures and I genuinely like, I'm trying to share because I like want people to know. But here's what I end up doing. We'll get out and we're all having fun and we're having a moment and it's beautiful and it's fun. And then I'll get the kids and I'm like trying to, to take a picture so I can share it, right? But then somebody will do something stupid and I'm like, don't do that. I'm trying to get a picture. Stop. Get your finger out of her ear, man. Come. Seriously, st- would you guys just act like you're having fun? Come, please. And I've, instead of like, like making the most of the moment, I've made the moment complicated, right? And instead of just enjoying life, I've made it this kind of staged thing where I'm like, why, why did I even do that? That was so stupid. What, what is wrong with me? And, and, and so, so many times, and I think this is true of all of us, oftentimes we spend so much time trying to manufacture the moment that we forget to maximize the moment. 
Stop trying to manufacture the moment. Is it possible to live a life that is so rooted in Christ that we don't have to borrow confidence from other people? I want us to get to a place in our relationship with Jesus where we don't need to borrow confidence from any human being. This is so critical. The death of contentment is comparison. Competition will take you captive and competition is a liar and a thief. And it will rob you of all of your joy. It will rob you of your contentment. It will cause you to spend your time living other people's lives. But God didn't call you to live somebody else's life. He called you to live your life. And see what we miss, in, especially in the body of Christ, guys, I'm telling you, we swing and miss at this all the time. It's not a competition. It's a calling. Find your calling and the competition won't hold you captive. Find your calling and the competition won't hold you captive. As a pastor, I get this question a lot. Pastor, what is God's will for my life? Why don't you just hit me with an easier question sometimes, okay? Because like, and this is kind of where I start, by the way, if anybody has been thinking about coming and asking me what God's will is for your life, let me kind of give you, I'll just give you the answer that I give everybody so that you'll have it and then you won't worry about it, okay, right? This is it. One of the things that I think that we struggle with is we want God's specific will before we're actually doing God's general will. So here's what I know for sure God's will is for your life. Go into all the world and make disciples of all men, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I also know this is God's will for your life. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I also know that this is God's will for your life. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man abides in me, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So here's here's the struggle that we have, though. We always want God to give us his specific will. But we really wrestle with doing his general will, right? And so what I will give you advice on is when you find yourself doing God's general will for your life as it's revealed in Scripture, you won't stress out so much about his specific will. I have people say to me all the time, matter of fact, I just watched this video by John Christ. Have you guys ever seen the Christian comedian John Christ? If you haven't, look the guy up. He's hilarious. Um, and he was doing this thing the other day that I watched, um, uh, Christian Ways to Say No. And, and he goes through all of these things. And it was so funny. And it's, don't look it up on your phone right now. Do it later. Okay. Um, so so he, he's doing all of these things. And one of them is like, um, I'm waiting on the call of God. And then one of the other ones, I'm not feeling led. And another one was, um, let me just pray about it. And so I have people all the time and I'll say, hey, look, we need some help with this. And they'll say, hey, let me pray about it. And I'll say, that's awesome. Do that. But while you're praying about it, I'd like you to do it. Because there's no prohibition in scripture that says don't do it. Matter of fact, there's a lot of things in scripture that says go ahead and just do it and pray about it as you do it, Right. So, so just go for it. Jump in. And if it's not your thing, God will be like, no, no. And probably your leaders are going to look at you and go, no, no. It's not a good fit, right? And that's cool. But, but don't let not knowing all the specific details keep you from stepping into the calling that you know. 
Okay, you've got a calling as a disciple. You've got a calling as a believer. And you don't have to have all the specifics. Matter of fact, that would be contrary to faith if you had all the details. I am a pastor. I know my calling. I don't know all the specifics about it. And I got this feeling that I'm going to go to meet Jesus one day and still not have all the specifics of my calling. But I'm cool with it. I'm going to go with what I know. And you should too. And you'll find that as you start to focus on that, you'll feel this peace. And you won't be worried about what other people are thinking. And it won't feel like such a competition. God gives you a calling in order to give you a focus. It will safeguard you. The world doesn't live by calling. It lives by competition. And that's all they have to go on. So I want to real quickly read just a couple of passages in the New Testament, and then we're going to shut down, okay? Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. It's about two-thirds of the way, maybe three-quarters of the way through the New Testament, through your Bible, rather. Ephesians chapter 4. This is the Apostle Paul writing. We're going to start with verse, verse 1. He says, Therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord. What is Paul? A prisoner. Therefore, I, a prisoner... For serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. For you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other. Making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourself united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. Listen to this. Paul is sitting in a prison cell talking about calling. So clearly, calling is not about what you do. It's about who you are. If Paul can talk about calling from a prison cell, he's clearly not talking about his activities. He's talking about himself. This is who I am. I am the called. I am the called. And you live out that calling every day, okay? It's about who you are. Now flip over to Colossians. You got Philippians next, then Colossians, chapter 2. We'll start with verse 9. It says, For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. How many of you can agree with that? In Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. He was the total package, wasn't he? Absolutely. Now let's read the next verse. Verse 10 says, So you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. So now he turns it, doesn't he? He says, not only is Christ the total package, but you're the total package. There is nothing else you need because you are united in Christ. You are the total package. You need to receive that this morning. You need to receive that this morning. You're the total package. Poke your neighbor, say, you're the total package. Yes, yeah, some of you need to hear that this morning. You are the total package. The scripture that we just read is the death blow to competition. You don't have to compete with anybody because God says that you are complete and you don't need to compete. I just rhymed and I didn't even mean to. You're complete and you don't have to compete. Complete without compete. I'm going to work on that. We'll work on that, see what comes. But that was good. It was the start of something. It was a kernel. So, so if we are full of the Spirit and we're full of passion, and we're full of the power of God, and we're full of God's identity for us. We are the total package. I just think you need to touch your neighbor again and say, you're full of it. 
That was fun. Thank you for going along with that. Okay, so three questions, and then we're going we're to wrap up. Three questions. These are the three questions that I ask myself when I find myself looking at competition in my life. The first one is, what am I trying to prove? Look at an area of your life where you're struggling with competition. Ask yourself this question. What am I trying to prove? The second question is, to whom? Who am I trying to prove something to? And then the last question is, for what? Like, what is going to come out of this competition and this comparison? What is going to be the fruit of that? What am I hoping comes out of this? And I think sometimes when I'm honest with myself about it, it gives me enough traction that I can overcome it. So what am I trying to prove? To who? Whose approval do I need? And for what? See, true tranquility only comes when you realize that you have nothing to prove to anyone because in Christ, God fully approves of you. In Christ, God fully approves of you. This, this isn't a one-time understanding, by the way. This is a lifetime. And you have to talk to yourself about it every day. You've got to preach this gospel to yourself that God fully approves of me. I don't need anything from anyone else because in Christ, God fully approves of me. I'm approved by God. I'm a son of God. I'm a child of God. I am the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. I am the light of the world, right? And we've got to convince ourselves of this. Because it's easy for us to believe what God says about himself, but it's difficult for us to believe what God says about us. I want my kids and your kids to get gripped with a sense of calling. See, the best way to keep your kids pure is not to preach at them all the time. The best way to keep your kids from getting into nonsense is not to try to protect them and shelter them. The best way to keep your kids from getting into nonsense is to impugn to them such a sense of God's call on their life that it gives them such a Holy Spirit focus that they can't let go of it. When you get gripped by the call of Christ on your life, you don't want to do anything to compromise it. That's what we got to do, parents. Help your kids get a hold of their call in Christ. He'll take care of the rest. He'll take care of the rest. I am so done with behavior modification technique. It doesn't work. Transformation of the heart is what works. And the only person that can do that is Christ. So lean into him. Lean into him. I want to ask this question one more time. And then I'm going to pray. Is it possible to live a life that is so rooted in Christ that we don't have to borrow confidence from other people? Stand with me. God, this morning... I pray over every person here that our confidence in you would be so unbelievably strong that we would not seek to borrow confidence from anyone else. Lord, I pray that you would wash our insecurities away. Help us, Lord, to live outside of a spirit of competition and allow us the strength of character to rejoice with those who rejoice and to mourn with those who mourn, to celebrate when others succeed, 
and to grieve when they suffer loss. God, this is what the body of Christ is supposed to look like when we get love right. I don't care. I want people to succeed around me. The greatest accomplishment that I have as a leader is when the people around me are succeeding. That's what success looks like. God, help us to see that. Help us as parents to see that our kids' success is our success. Help us to see that the people around us succeeding and winning is the gift of God to us and should serve as an encouragement to us. God, work and move in us. Teach us these lessons, Lord. Teach us well. And God, strengthen us for the journey to which you've called us. In Christ's name we pray. And the whole church said, Amen. Amen.